Please turn to James chapter 1. Back to James for another trip to the woodshed, folks. We've been in this series now for, for several weeks in the book of James, which we have called Don't Get the Wrong Idea. And uh, just about every week, uh, James has found a new way to make us uncomfortable. Uh, last week, I think Wes made you pretty uncomfortable thinking about the words that come out of your mouth. Well, this week is going to be no exception. In fact, James is going to up the ante a little bit because he's going to talk about a subject that just by itself is notorious for making all of us feel uncomfortable. Today, James is going to tell us not to have the wrong idea about money. Does that sound like fun? Yeah. So hang on to your wallet or not. And uh, let's jump right into James chapter 1. I'm just going to read you three verses to start with. We'll go to three different places in the book. James says this in 1 verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So... um, We don't like to talk about money very much, but it's important that we do because how we treat our material wealth is a a very important part of following Jesus. Um, We have to think about money sometimes, right, because we can't live without it. We, We need money. We need to use it in order to procure the necessities of life. But as we manage our money, as we manage it, we also find that it has a strange ability about it that it can begin to manage us right? Money can become our master. You all know that when Jesus talks about money, he, he actually uses the language of spiritual warfare. He talks about serving another god. He even uses the term mammon, which is quite possibly a word derived from the name of a false god, the Syrian god of wealth. And, and Jesus says it's possible to serve mammon. He's making it very clear that money is one of those things that can very easily become a god to us. And so as we earn money, as we spend money, as we manage money, as we invest money, as we need to be careful because life can, can very easily become all about money. When I say money, I don't just mean money per se, but money and material things that we can get. And what we call financial freedom, which is something I think we'd all like to admit that we want to have, um, financial freedom of a certain type can become not just freedom, but it can become bondage. It became a real form of, of enslavement. We're going to talk about what financial freedom really is today and, and maybe some ways we can get to, to pursue the real kind of it and not the false kind of it. James here is, is going to echo Jesus like he does a lot on this topic, but he's also got his own pastoral angle on this because remember James is a pastor. He's ministering to a flock of people which is now scattered all over the Roman world probably, and his people are likely experiencing some new things when it comes to encountering material wealth in different ways. Now, most of James's congregation would probably not be doing so well financially. They'd probably be considered poor by the standards of their day. Some of them were literally refugees, no doubt. Perhaps some of them have been doing fairly well financially when they were living in, in Judea, but, but since they have had to leave and go somewhere else, their poverty was a very new experience, kind of like refugees that come to America. They maybe have been doing well where they came from, but here they find they don't have the tools to earn a living. 
Uh, perhaps, although it also looks like some of the folks in James's scattered congregation have actually been maybe doing well for themselves financially, even in their new places, even wherever they find themselves. Um, but all of them would have found themselves at times surrounded by just the, the opulence and, and the outright materialism that was so much a part of, of the upper crust of Greek and Roman culture and society. And so the temptation to envy, the temptation to, to covetousness, the temptation to, to, to want what others have would be quite strong, and, and as would be the temptation for the ones who actually had managed to do a little bit better to take pride in what they had done and what they had accomplished and how far they had gotten and what they had made of themselves in their new home. So James wants to speak into the situation here, and, and there are three passages in this letter here, this short letter, that talk about money and material things, and a few others that allude to it, but there's three main ones, and he's got three warnings for his congregation. First, he's going to say, when it comes to money and material things, don't get the wrong idea about yourselves, about who you are related to these things. Secondly, he's going to say, don't get the wrong idea about others. Because when you look at other people, you're going to get a certain idea about them based on your idea of money and material wealth. And then he says, lastly, don't get the wrong idea about things. So don't have the wrong idea about yourself, about others, and about things. And then he gives them, uh, we're going to talk a little bit at the end about how to get the right idea and where that comes from. But let's look at the first passage here, which we just read. This is where James is saying, don't get the wrong idea about yourself, yourself. He starts by saying, let the poor brother, the brother in lowly circumstances, boast in his high position, or in, let, let him boast in his exaltation, literally. Now, there's a, a strange thing to say, right? Are you a poor person? Boast about it. Boast about how high a position you have. What is James saying here? Well, this may sound a little strange, but poor people, and you know this if you've read the Bible, poor people have a big advantage when it comes to their spiritual life. In God's economy, it is consistent throughout the Bible, the poor people are the upper class. The poor people are the nobility. They're the lucky ones. What did Jesus say? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit in Matthew. And in Luke, when he comes back to that, he just says, blessed are the poor. Period. And the word blessed means happy. It might mean lucky. Probably the best translation would be fortunate. Fortunate are the poor. And of course, if you're a poor person and you hear how fortunate you are, it's very easy to say, wow, yeah, Lord, um, thanks, but I think I've had quite enough of this good fortune. How about sending me some bad luck right now in the form of some Benjamins, huh? Wouldn't that be nice? But that's just the point. It's just the point. The temptation for people who don't have a lot or for people who are going through financial problems maybe for a season is going to be envy resentment, and covetousness. We all know that people, rich people can easily make money their God, but you know what? You don't have to have a lot of money to make an idol out of money. You can do just as good a job worshiping money from a distance. And just so you know, James, James is not telling his people they have to stay poor. James is not telling his people they shouldn't maybe try to earn more money. This is not Karl Marx here where religion is the opiate of the masses and James is trying to just sort of convince the poor people to stay in their place and remain poor. And this is not some form of you know, Hinduism or something in which poverty is just your lot in life. And so suck it up, buttercup. You better have to learn how to take it and live that way because that's the way it's going to be for you. That's not what James is saying. That's not his point. 
James would probably have no problem with people trying to better their condition a little bit financially, but he's saying this to the poor folks who are the majority of his people. He's saying, look, at this time in your life when you don't have a lot, don't look at what you haven't got. Look at what you have got. Look at what you have got. Read the Old Testament law. Read the prophets. You will see that God is on the side of the poor. God is the champion of the poor. He's the champion of the widow and the orphan and the refugee. The Messiah, Isaiah 61 predicts, Jesus has come to preach good news to the the poor and to render justice to the poor. Later on, James is going to say in what we'll read, he's going to say that God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith, which should immediately remind you, by the way, that if you look at the global church, look at the church around the world, all the Christians on planet earth, which economic stratum is vastly overrepresented? It's the poor. The church around the world is, is basically pretty poor. Paul admits this outright in 1 Corinthians. He says, look, not many of you people in the church here are rich. Most of the worldwide body of Christ is not well off financially. The poor are much more likely to trust in Christ. Why? Because quite frankly, they don't have as many other options. And that's a blessing. And I know I look at First Alliance Church and we think, well, where are we on the wealth scale? You know, we're not a super wealthy church, maybe by some standards, but I, I think we can hardly call ourselves poor. And yes, there are people among us who are struggling financially, maybe all the time, maybe at different times or for a season, but maybe because of, you know, job loss or hospital bills or something like that. But let, let me just say this. If you're in a position right now where you're struggling financially or you have a lot of financial worries or financial loss or, or there's just, you don't really know where the next, you know, meal or paycheck is coming from or whatever, let me just say this. Don't miss this chance to trust in God. Don't miss the chance, the opportunity here to trust in God. Your relative poverty during this season of your life is actually, in a way, a gift from God because it is an invitation to put your trust in Him, to seek Him, to seek Him in prayer, to find the value of the other non-material things that He has blessed you with, certainly like the love of your family, but also things like forgiveness, eternal life, and inheritance in heaven. And it's much easier and much more natural for you to do that now than it will be when you have more stuff that can cloud your vision and keep you from seeing God and keep you from seeing all those non-material blessings that he's given you. So James says, let the lowly person, meaning the poor person, exalt. Let, Let him be happy. Let him rejoice, celebrate his exaltation, the fact that he's in a higher position than it looks like he's at, because he really is. That's the first thing James says. Then James says something even more bizarre to the wealthy Christian. He says, if you're a brother and, and, you're, and you're rich, he says, take pride in your low position. What does that mean? Whoever takes pride in their low position. But that's what James tells the rich brother to do. Well, what can that possibly mean? This afternoon, uh, Dawn and I will be heading over to a birthday party uh, for our little grandson, Reuben, who is turning three years old on Tuesday. Now, Reuben is not a big person. Some of you have seen him. He's about two foot something. He weighs about 35 pounds. He has not yet reached his athletic peak in life. But I guarantee you that there is one game that if he were to be matched up against LeBron James, Reuben would win every single time. And I'm not talking about, you know, like shoots and ladders or wetting your pants or something like that. I'm talking about a real game. 
The game is limbo. Ever do that? You know, so remember, you have, ever tried to you go to a party and you got to get under that, that little bar that's held out? You know what? LeBron James would have no chance against Reuben in that game. Why not? Because he's starting off at an incredible disadvantage. Folks, in some ways, the door to the kingdom of heaven is like that limbo bar. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You can't get in until you get low enough. You can't get in until you're poor in spirit. You can't get in until you look inside yourself and all the things that you are and all the things you have and you say, I don't have what it takes. I can't do this on my own. I can't do it at all. And and that's not easy for a wealthy, self-sufficient, high-ranking person to do. It's just not. Because there's too many other ways to think. And one of the things that James is saying here is this. He's saying, look, if you're a rich person, or even a relatively rich person, and you've managed somehow to repent and believe in Jesus, to put your faith in him, you had better thank your lucky stars that you got into the kingdom, because I'm telling you, the odds were not in your favor. They weren't. You are very blessed, and you should rejoice that the Holy Spirit showed you the truth, and you were able to get to a low enough place in your life where you reached out to Jesus for salvation, because you doing that was kind of like an NBA forward getting under that three-foot limbo bar. That's where you're at. So rejoice. Remember when Jesus said, with God all things are possible? Remember what had made him say that? It was the nearly impossible feat of a rich man getting into the kingdom of God. That's what made him say that. After that rich young ruler, remember that guy came to Jesus, wanted to be a disciple, but he went away sad because he had great wealth and he, he couldn't follow Jesus. And Jesus looked at that poor guy. I mean that rich guy, right? But that's what he was, poor guy. He was poor because of his wealth. James says, look, don't let your money, don't let your money and the world's opinions about it give you the wrong idea about yourself. Those of us who are relatively rich by the world's standards, which is most of us here, have to be amazed that we even got in if we know Christ and to thank God profusely for his impossible gift of grace. So for the poor and the rich, James says, look, in your poverty, celebrate your wealth. In your wealth, rejoice if God has given you the gift of eternal life through the poverty of spirit that allowed you to receive Jesus when you realized that your wealth could never make you secure and you reached out desperately for Christ to save you. But then he says this. It's not just how you think about yourselves. James also wants us to get an accurate picture of others, and that's in chapter 2, right at the beginning. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love your neighbor as thyself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, this passage is pretty straightforward, isn't it? I was talking to um, Pastor West this past week about the book of James, and he's like, I read through these verses, 
And it's almost like they're impossible to preach on because you don't have to comment on them at all. They just sort of comment on themselves. You don't have to dig very deep. And this is very straightforward, isn't it? It's not hard to understand. Certainly, we need to be careful that we are not slighting the poor who come to visit First Alliance Church while rolling out the red carpet for people that are nicely dressed or well-groomed or they look like they might have it all together. And honestly, I don't think our church can be credibly accused of doing that, but maybe we can look just a little bit below the surface to our attitudes because I believe that, that James wants to drive us a little bit deeper here. When I read this passage, one of the things I think about is another church, another church in a place called Corinth back in the first century. And I think about Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 11, and he's talking about how they do communion. And, and back then, they got together for the Lord's Supper, and back then, in their culture, in their context, it was kind of like a big potluck meal. And when, when the Corinthian church got together for this potluck meal, what happened was that the rich people were pigging out on all the fine food they had brought with them, and the poor people were going hungry. See, everybody was eating their own food they had brought, and they were hanging out with their own crowd, you know, their own social class. And so the economic inequality in the church at Corinth, which was considerable, was being highlighted rather than healed. And to Paul, that was a big deal. I almost called this sermon, Don't Get the Wrong Idea About Social Justice, um, which would have gotten your attention, do you agree? But that phrase has been hijacked in so many angles and means so many things to so many different people today, I, th I thought better of calling it that. But you know what? Here's where it maybe comes in, because if there is a definition of social justice that works for the church, it may be what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 15, where Paul says this. He says, the goal of the church is equality, and he quotes the Old Testament where it says this, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. So Paul's not necessarily defining equality here as everybody always has the same amount, but he does say this, nobody has too much and nobody has too little. So putting together what Paul says in First and Second Corinthians and what James says here, here's what I conclude. Here's what I conclude. Differences in financial wealth in the church should be minimized. Differences in social status in the church should be obliterated. Differences in financial wealth in the church should be minimized, how? Through the sharing of our material things to the point where everybody has enough, but nobody has too much. Well, how much is too much? I'm going to let you and God work that one out, because that's a tough one, isn't it? And differences in social standing should disappear at the foot of the cross. A random person should be able to walk into First Alliance Church on a Sunday morning service or or at a potluck supper, and not be able to tell who has money and who doesn't because of the way we freely share with one another and the way we freely fellowship with one another. Which leads me to one maybe uncomfortable application question I thought of that I can use to end this section about partiality in the church and our view of others. Let me ask you this. How many friends do you have in the church, whether it's this church or in the, the, the church as a whole, how many friends do you have that are in a different tax bracket than you are. That's a hard one. I don't mean brothers and sisters. I don't mean people you're ministering to. I mean friends. Because friends, by definition, are peers. Friends are equals. And every believer, young or old, rich or poor, needs to make some friends in the church. Okay, let's look at the last passage. It's a doozy. James chapter 5. Verse 1, come now, you rich, weep and howl 
for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of, judge, of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Okay. Like a lot of passages in James, um, this one sounds rather harsh and unforgiving. Right? And I think part of what James is doing here is, is, he is he wants to ensure the poorer brothers and sisters in his flock that the people that have been oppressing them, the people that have been cheating them and dragging them into court and everything, that these people are going to one day come up against God's justice and get their comeuppance. That's part of what James is doing. But you know, we read this and it sounds like all rich people are evil, doesn't it? It's not, we, we kind of wish James had made more of a distinction between like the good rich people and the bad rich people. But James doesn't do that. James is not in the habit of tempering his language to make us happy, and he doesn't speak with a lot of subtlety. And again, he knows that his words have some shock value, so he lets it stand like that. There's obviously a warning here, not just for rich people that are oppressing others, but for all of us who have some things who have material wealth, there's a warning here about our proper view, not just of ourselves or other people, but our proper view of these things, of the stuff that we have. Riches, James says, can be radioactive. They're dangerous. They're, they're corrosive. There's, it's like carrying battery acid around. They threaten our spiritual life. They threaten our health. We, we sometimes, you know, when you have a little extra money, Remember how we used to say, I've got some money burning a hole in my pocket. You know, James says, you know what, your money, it can burn a hole in your soul. It can. Hoarded wealth is among the most toxic substances in existence. And it's not just dangerous. James says it's actually worthless. It's rotten and it's moth-eaten. So if you invited James over to your house one day and you showed him some of the nice stuff that you've bought for your house, he's liable to say, wow, there's some fuel for the fire of hell. What a bunch of worthless junk. <laughs> James probably didn't get invited over a whole lot to the, visit people. You know, he's not very subtle and he's not very diplomatic, but he's got a point, right? Remember the bumper sticker, whoever dies with the most toys wins? Whoever made that up to the extent that he actually thought that at all could not possibly be more self-deceived because the reality is just the complete opposite. In God's courtroom, James says, in God's courtroom, hoarded wealth can be submitted as evidence Evidence of selfish living. So the one who dies with the most toys actually loses big time. So how do we win? How do we get out of this? How do we, really, how do we, how do we get free of the material things that not only have the potential to become idols and enslave us so that we have to have more and more or can't let go, but, how, but also can testify against us when it comes time for us to give an account of our life before God? What do we do? Well, first we fall on our knees, we fall on God's mercy, poor in spirit, and we ask for his forgiveness, thanking him that he can do the impossible, as we talked about earlier, because otherwise we wouldn't have a chance of getting in. But then we do the only thing that can really set us free from stuff. The only foolproof way to escape from the tyranny of your possessions, guess what it is? You have to give them away. That frees you, right? 
How much is too much? How, how, much, how much is too much to keep stashed away? How much is too much to leave to your kids? I mean, let's face it, you want to help your kids, right? You don't want them to starve. On the other hand, how much of this radioactive, corrosive stuff do you want to saddle them with? Because it can enslave them. Now, I'm not going to give you a number, obviously, and only you can answer these questions under the guidance and conviction of God's Holy Spirit. But one way to answer the question might go something like this. Give your stuff away to the point that it keeps you from doing something you might otherwise have done and the point that it keeps you from having something you might otherwise have had. In other words, it's got to make a difference. Give your stuff away to the point that it keeps you from doing something you might have done or having something you might have had. I don't know what that looks like exactly. There's big and little ways. Maybe you, maybe you switch your morning coffee from a, from a venti to a grande. You know, you don't need all that caffeine anyway. Maybe you drive a Camry instead of a Lexus or, or a Tacoma rather than a Tundra or a Corolla rather than a Camry. That's for you Toyota people, okay? If you're like a Chevy person, translate. Maybe there's something that's been on your bucket list that you cross off, not because you did it, but because you've decided you don't have to do it, you know, so you can give more away. Maybe there's some other step that's either simple or exotic that you could take. I don't know. But one of my favorite quotes on this is from John Piper, who said this. This is kind of an extended quote, but here's what Piper says about this. He says, why does God bless us with abundance? So we can have enough to live on and then use the rest for all manner of good works that alleviate spiritual and physical misery, temporal and eternal suffering. Enough for us, abundance for others. The issue is not how much a person makes. Big industry and big salaries are a fact of our times, and they are not necessarily evil. The evil is in being deceived into thinking that a large salary must be accompanied by a lavish lifestyle. God has made us to be conduits of his grace. The danger is in thinking the conduit should be lined with gold. It shouldn't. Copper will do. Copper will do. Okay, so once you've decided how much to keep, what do you do with the rest? Am I saying you, you give it away, right? Do I say you give it to the church? Sure. But you don't have to give it to the church. Oh, that's obviously, that's part of your walk with Jesus. Giving generously to God's work is obviously a good use of these funds. But Proverbs also says this, he who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. You know, the options are limitless, honestly. There are countless ways in which you can pay it forward in the sense of building up treasure in heaven. Ever think about what that means, building up treasure in heaven? You say, well, you can't take it with you. You're right, but you know what? You can send it ahead. It's a little different up in heaven. They don't value the same things. Like the guy who tried to, to smuggle some gold into heaven and somehow he got past the front gate and St. Peter looked at it and said, you brought pavement? But you know, for, for most of us, the problem is not finding worthy places to give. It's, it's parting with the stuff in the first place, which leads to the final question, how are we supposed to do this out of, from our hearts? You know, what, what allows us to make these decisions that might simplify our lives or bless others, give wealth away before it harms us or enslaves us? How, how do we have the courage to be generous with our stuff and to be confident that God will take care of us even if we don't hoard it all the way for self-keeping to keep ourselves secure. You probably will not be surprised to learn that the answer to that question is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and particularly at the cross of Calvary.
the place where if you're trusting in Jesus, and we've talked about this already this morning, we sang it a bunch of times, the place where your sin was transferred onto him, including the greed and the envy and the selfishness we've been talking about this morning, your sin was transferred onto him and his righteousness was transferred back onto you. What an incredible transfer, right? He gets your sin, you get his holy record of righteousness. But you know what? The cross was also the place of the greatest wealth transfer in the history of the world. Jesus, in coming to earth as a man, had already impoverished himself. He gave up the glory of heaven for the life of a poor person, a poor itinerant teacher who often didn't have a place to live. And then, as the time of Jesus' death approaches, John 13 tells us, he tells, tells us this, that he showed his disciples the full extent of his love. What I picture there is Jesus throughout his whole life giving and giving and giving. Like he's got the cup that is his life and he's, he's turning it sideways just a little bit and pouring out a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. And then when you get to John chapter 13 in the last week of Jesus' life, he turns the whole cup upside down and he gives us everything that's left. That's how generous Jesus is. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says it this way, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty you might be rich. You say, what did Jesus give us at the cross? What wealth was transferred to us at the cross? Here's an idea. Open the book of Ephesians and just start reading. Right at the beginning. Holiness, love, redemption, forgiveness, adoption into God's family, an eternal inheritance, the presence of the Holy Spirit. You know what? That's all in the first sentence after the greeting that goes on. None of it, none of those blessings have any connection whatsoever to your level of earthly prosperity. Let me ask you something, maybe an easy question. Would it be easier to give money away if you had like a ton of it? If you're like Bill Gates and had that much money, wouldn't it be easier to give your money away? You might say, well, I don't know. Yeah, it would. It would for me. You know, if I've got a million dollars versus a hundred dollars and I've got a need that I can meet, I'm going to be a lot more comfortable doing it if I've got the million. It's easier. So you ask the question, would being filthy rich make you a more generous giver? And most of us will say, sure. Well, guess what? If you're in Christ, that's exactly what you are. You are richer than the Tesla dude, the Amazon dude, and the Facebook dude combined. I can't always remember their names, so i got to just say it that way. But you know what? I'm sure all three of those men think that they have financial freedom. But I don't think they know what it means. I don't think they know what it means. A few years ago, I was talking with a precious brother in our church. He was terminally ill at the time. Now he's with the Lord. And uh, I was over at his house. We were just talking. And he said to me, Paul, I, I used to have enough money. I used to have enough money that if I wanted something, you know, new tools, new vehicle, whatever it was, I, I just bought it. I didn't even think about it. If I, if I wanted something, I just, I just went out and got it. That's how much money I had. He said, but no one now with the, with the hospital bills and not being able to work, it's just the opposite. He said, I'm, I'm selling stuff now instead of buying it. But then he said this. He said, you know, it turns out that all that stuff didn't really matter. He said, it's just stuff, and I have discovered over time that I can live with it or I can live without it. 
That sounds a lot like Philippians 4, if you're familiar with those verses, doesn't it? Paul said it this way. He said, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. That's the real context for that famous verse. And that's also the real definition of financial freedom. And it only comes through the riches that come to you through Jesus Christ. Don't get the wrong idea. Let's pray.